0: local church. We're also praying for a people group, the Han people of China, uh, 40 million strong. A couple of images I can show you. Of You can see uh, these people are known for their stubbornness and pride. Uh, they are clannish and resistant to outsiders, but if the Lord is drawing them, they will not be able to resist. Let's pray for that. God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to lift up a people group this morning. We are thankful that in these next few minutes that we are a house praying for the nations, burden, burden for the nations, and burden that you would draw a people to you that would be known as proud and difficult to penetrate. Lord, we are thankful that, uh, that you can do all things. We're thankful that you can soften any and every heart. We're thankful that all the verbs of salvation belong to you. We are so thankful that you can draw this people, Lord, and we beg for that. Forty million people strong, three percent of which are less are Christian. Lord, we ask you to draw this people. We ask you to send people uh, who have to go because they can't stay. We pray that you would send workers to the far corners to sow the good seed of the kingdom. Lord, also this morning we want to pray for another church in our community. We're praying for Fellowship Bible Church and Travis Chappelle and his family and his a uh, marriage, Lord, first we want to pray for his worship. Lord, To pray that he is blessed as he's enjoying you and walking with you and leading your people and leading his family. Lord, to pray that he is fueled by and governed by, sustained by, directed by the goodness of the gospel. That the Holy Spirit, is, he is in step with the Holy Spirit. That he's listening to the, uh, to the direction and the words that you're giving him through the teaching and preaching of the word. Lord, we pray that the first place that that hits home is at home in his marriage. We pray that his marriage would be blessed and rich. Pray that his people, the the people that gather there, would see the gospel on display as he and his wife walk together, enjoying you together. We pray that his children would be blessed, that you would keep them from the ways of the world and keep them from the ways of Satan, that they would hold fast to Christ even at a young age, and that their family would be blessed. Lord, we pray for the entire church, of Fellowship Bible Church, that they would flourish. Lord, we pray that they would have the wonderful problems of parking and uh, kids' space and seating issues. and Lord, most of all, because they're doing the basic and unimpressive and daily and relentless work of making disciples. Lord, we entrust this church to you, Fellowship Bible Church. We ask you to bless them. Lord, we ask you that you would bless us in these next few minutes and give us a, a special view into a terrible day at the temple we pray that we would see what Christ was up to. They would connect for us the beauty of what we have and who we have in Christ. We're praying these things in his precious name. Amen. You can stand for the reading of the word, please. Mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany he was hungry. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Lord, speak to us through these words. Show us your greatness. Show us your goodness to us in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We're in the final days leading up to the cross, to Christ's cross. I, Imagining that if you've ever walked through the final days with someone, you remember every conversation. You remember every thought that they had. You remember the import of those hours and days that you have left with someone. And I can imagine that these disciples, these apostles that walked with him in these final days remembered every detail. We left off last week with a triumphal entry where he came into Jerusalem. And we remember we added air quotes around triumphal because I'm not sure it's quite as triumphal as we might have imagined, came into the temple and apparently according to verse 11, which we did not read this morning, you can look back, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. When he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It looks like he was making a little recon to the temple the night before place where we're landing today. We know that he stayed in Bethany. We don't know where exactly he stayed. We might expect that he stayed with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Those were friends of his from Bethany. And if he stayed with them, then we can imagine that uh, the next morning that Martha probably had plans to make a big breakfast. We know it's not going to be Mary making breakfast. We know Lazarus is going to sleep in, but Martha would probably would be getting up and making breakfast. But apparently she slept in and hit, hit the snooze button because Jesus gets up the next morning to go into Jerusalem again And he's hungry. And that's where we pick up. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break this passage up into three pieces. And we're just going to look at what's going on in this passage and try and make sense of one point this morning. Just one point. One important and profound point. Beginning again in verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found, I'm going to say this for for the purpose of uh, calling it to attention, nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Fig trees in leaf usually meant they were producing fruit. We might expect that. We may not live in an environment where we're eating a meal necessarily from a tree that's growing beside the road. But in this case, and in this time, fig trees that were in leaf usually meant they were producing fruit. Although Mark makes the point, surprisingly, that this was not the season for figs. That's a very important point. It's where we're going to land the plane this morning. So you can just make a mental note about that. But just know that for the most part, fig trees in leaf were supposed to have fruit on them. And Jesus, seeing this tree from a distance... Looks, it looks promising to him, and he believes maybe there's something there to eat. And he approached the tree and found nothing but leaves. In other words, it looked promising, but was not fruit-producing. thought about those times where maybe you want to go visit a restaurant that you've been planning to visit. You've heard about it, and you show up, and there's an hour and a half wait. It might as well be closed in my mind because I'm not going to wait an hour and a half for anything. I don't care how good it is. So like that fig tree, you might approach it and find that it is barren. Or maybe you've rifled through the cupboards looking for a snack at late time and you find an Oreo box, an Oreo package that doesn't have anything but crumbs in it. I don't know anybody in this world, Daniel McGraw, that might do something like that. But someone might actually do something so criminal. You can imagine how that might play out where he's hungry and he approaches this tree and there's no figs on it and he cursed the tree. Surprisingly, he cursed the tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again and the disciples heard it. If you read this story by itself and you don't read the story that it's connected to and what's around it or what it's around, in other words, then you can miss the point of this passage. You can miss, and he might seem kind of petty here. It might seem like God kind of did some God power here, and he abused this tree a little bit. It might seem a little bit petty that he cursed it, and it actually died. You know how the story goes. But there's more to the story than meets the eye. Let's continue on in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold And those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. You can imagine that this would have been quite a spectacle. This is at the time of Passover, and this doesn't appear from the verbs that are used here like it was just a momentary flash. It looks like it was a protracted event. He began to drive out those who sold. And those who bought. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, This was what we might call not a fit, but an episode. This thing apparently lasted for more than a few minutes. For us to make sense of it, I want to make sense first of the layout of the temple. Can you go ahead and put that first picture up of Herod's temple? Herod's temple was technically the third temple. Some people might say it's the second temple um, or an improvement on the second temple. But Herod's temple was quite a spectacle. Herod's temple was considered to be nearly among the seven wonders of the world. If there had been eight or nine or ten wonders of the world, it probably would have made the list. This thing was pretty spectacular. I just want to acquaint you with sort of the the, uh, layout of this place. The holy place is right here and the holy of holies would be within... The altar's right here, the court of Israel. Uh, Here's the court of the Gentiles. One way to sort of break this thing down, here's the court of the women. One way to sort of understand this layout of this temple is in some ways concentric circles of holiness progressively decreasing. The most holy place would have been right here, i.e. called the holy of holies in the holy place. And as you move out into the court of the priests and then move out into the court of the men... And then move out into court of the women. And then you eventually land in the outermost area, this, this really large area here, the court of the Gentiles. Go ahead and show that next picture. Just because I want to show this huge man. I just thought it was cool. Really, I, you can go ahead and turn it off. I, I just thought that was kind of funny. But that's not life-size. That's not a life-size temple, and that man is not really that big. It was just He built that. Apparently, he spent something like 30 years building that layout of the temple. So there are guys that have really studied the temple and the layout to make sense of it. Work on Herod's temple began about 20 years B.C., 20 B.C., and it ended 66 B.C. You can add that up and realize we're talking about 86 years of construction. Some of you are building a home, and you're really getting frustrated. Just kind of put that in perspective. This took 86 years to build this place and consider it again to be among, possibly among, if we had eight or nine or ten wonders of the world among the list. The Court of the Gentiles now is where I want to spend our sort of our focus this morning. The Court of the Gentiles was 500 yards long by 325 yards wide, it was 35 acres. It was a significant structure, the court of the Gentiles. There were columns in the court of the Gentiles that were 35 feet high. They were so large it would take three people holding hands to reach around just one of them. This court of the Gentiles would be the place where most of us, not all of us, someone may have a Jewish heritage here among us, but most of us I think mostly have a Gentile heritage. That's the court where we would, we would be able to go. We might actually call that court instead of calling it the court of the Gentiles. We might actually call it the closest we can get to God court. Yeah, I'm going to the temple and I'm going to hang out in the closest we can get to God court. There were warning signs posted along the walls before you went into the court of the women. Between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, warning signs that said this. No foreigner may enter without, or within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Any apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. It's a serious matter to go from the court of the Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, to enter into the court of the women. Now verse 15 tells us what's going on here in the court of the Gentiles. It identifies a couple of different people there, the money changers and the pigeon sellers. Okay, the money changers, these, both of these, the money changers and the pigeon sellers and other critters that are sold for sacrifice are necessary parts of the sacrificial system. Okay, we're not talking about something being sold here that was unnecessary. A couple of things t- took place there. The money changers actually did something for people that are coming from all over the Roman Empire, pilgrims, to come for Passover. They're bringing all manner of Roman currency with them. And they couldn't just drop that random currency in, in the till there. They had to drop Tyrian coinage. Tyrian was the closest that they could find to the ancient Hebrew coinage. It didn't have any face on it. And that was the only thing acceptable for an offering at the temple. So they needed to convert their money. And they also needed to buy some sacrifices. Unless they carried something with them, they would need to buy sacrifices for the sacrificial system. Now, just to give you a sense of the scale, okay? just a sense of the scale of what's going on here. First of all, This current, or these money changing and the selling of critters actually took place on the Mount of Olives for many years. And it was only in the previous couple of years, as approved by Caiaphas, that it came into the court of the Gentiles. And again, to give you a sense of the scale, this is how many critters were sacrificed at Passover in 66 AD. There's an ancient historian that's put a number on this 255,600 lambs were sacrificed at this temple. In 66 A.D., just during the eight-day period of Passover. We're talking about a significant... Uh, this is like Canton is going on right here in the, in the outer court. And Don and, and, and Ken are laughing over there because they know exactly what Canton is like. Let's, let's, just, let's, let's even nail it down more. This is like Canton between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. It's crazy right there in the court of the Gentiles. Now, let me just kind of just address something before we continue. We're going to get back to our story, but let me, let me share with you. I want to kind of preempt something. For many years, I've believed that Jesus was cleansing or clearing the, the, the temple courts here because of some, sense of some sort of corruption. Okay, I already, already pointed out that what was going on in the court there was actually something that needed to go on somewhere. Again, it typically populated and should have populated the Mount of Olives, these stations where people were exchanging money and selling critters. This issue was not about corruption. For many years, I thought that it must have been sort of price gouging, like when you buy popcorn at the theater. You know, like, are you kidding me, $12? Like, they're just on location there, so they're selling a pigeon for 12 times the amount of what it would cost out on the Mount of Olives. That's not, you know, or if you buy food at the Gaylord, you know what I'm talking about, where your car is eight miles away, so you're just stuck with buying the most expensive food you've ever purchased. That's not what's going on in the temple courts here. It's not a matter of corruption. It's not a matter of price gouging. It's a matter of the fact that it's in the temple courts. Okay, so let's, and specifically, the court of the Gentiles. Okay, so let's get back to our story. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and from the looks of it, went directly to the temple. Straight away. That first day on the triumphal entry, he does a little recon that night. Okay? It's getting late in the day. They'd already traveled from Jericho some 18, 19 miles. a significant journey, so it's late in the day. So he comes back when apparently it's high traffic time. A lot of folks in the area. It's mid-morning maybe when he arrives back at the temple, and the operation is in full swing. This is like Black Friday at Best Buy. I mean, everybody's everywhere. Filling this these courts. It's crowded. The John account tells us that he actually used a whip to run everybody out of there. I mean, he lost it. This is the one moment in the ministry of Jesus where he actually is clearly angry. And he uses a whip to drive out all those participating in this commercial venture. The buyers, the sellers, the exchangers, and even those who are using it as a shortcut for commerce in the temple. Now, here's the thing I want you to realize before we continue. He was expected here. They should have, and many probably did, expect him to show up at the temple. Maybe not on this day. Probably not on this day. Not like Simeon and Anna sitting around waiting waiting around at the temple for baby Jesus to show up. We don't know that there's anybody sitting around on this event On this day, expecting it. But in the bigger sense, they were certainly expecting this to happen, but not expecting what actually did happen. There's an ancient writing. It's called the Psalm of Solomon. It's actually in the Apocrypha. For some of you that may have a faith background where you consider the Apocrypha part of the Bible, the Catholics actually study the Apocrypha. It's not something that we as Protestants consider to be... Uh, the primary uh, scripture. In fact, we won't even really consider it to be on par with scripture. But it's an interesting window into the mind of folks in this time. This thing called the Psalm of Solomon is not the same thing as Song of Solomon. Not even close. It wasn't even written by Solomon. It was written 100 to, 100, uh, to 200 years before Christ showed up. In that window before Jesus shows up. And this uh, kind of gives us a window and informs the minds of those that would have been expecting potentially the Messiah to show up at the temple. Let me kind of give you a window of what they're expecting according to this psalm of Solomon. Chapter 17 of this psalm says, See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers. Okay, that sounds good. To cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. Let that hit you for a moment. To cleanse Jerusalem from Gentiles, who trample her to destruction. To drive out in wisdom and in righteousness the sinners from the inheritance. To crash the arrogance of sinners like a potter's jar. To smash all their substance with an iron rod. To destroy the lawless nations with the word of his mouth. To make the nations flee from his presence. And here's how this psalm ends. He will have Gentile nations serving him under his yoke. And he will cleanse Jerusalem to reach a sanctification as she had from the beginning. See, there are folks expecting him to show up at the temple. Maybe not on this day, maybe not at this hour. But they're expecting the Messiah to show up at this this temple to do a cleaning, all right. But to clean all the Gentiles out of the temple to clean all the Gentiles, maybe even potentially out of Jerusalem, to get all these outcasts, these undesirables, away from the people who are actually enjoying the inheritance. Now, I hope if you're like me, a fellow Gentile, you're kind of glad to hear that's not, that's not part of our Bible, that we don't consider that to be authoritative, because that's exactly what Jesus didn't do. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus did. Let me show you the passage that we do consider to be authoritative. Isaiah chapter 56. I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah 56. As you're turning there, I want to kind of prepare you for what we're about to read. Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 3. I think it'll probably be on the slide behind me as well. Just two chapters before where we read this morning, before the, right in front of where the Higgins read this morning. Listen to what this passage says. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, those I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Did you hear that? Eunuchs and foreigners and outcasts. This is a promise through Isaiah. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So here's the good news of what happened on that day when Jesus cleared the temple. When he cleared the court of the Gentiles, that outer court, he's not clearing that of some sort of corruption. Get out of here, you guys are overcharging. He's not clearing it of some issue where there are um, Gentiles in the court, period. He's clearing it of the fact that the the Gentiles can't get in there because something has been introduced in that commercial venture of money-changing And pigeon sails. He's actually making a way and a place for the Gentiles. Literally. He doesn't clear the temple of the Gentiles. He clears the temple for the Gentiles. Now here's the cool thing. He was expected on that day, but he certainly wasn't expected to do this. Man, he's a contrary king through and through. Riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. Clearing the outer courts there, not of Gentiles but clearing the courts of what was in the way of the Gentiles coming and praying and being with God. Rather than cleansing Jerusalem of the Gentiles, he's cleansing the temple for the Gentiles. A room full of Gentiles ought to really enjoy that. Now this thing, this event where he cleared this temple this day, this among all the things that he ever did in his earthly ministry was probably the thing that put the nail in the coffin for him. This was the event that came up at his trials. This is the thing that came up when he was uh, mocked and when people jeered at him when he was on the cross. This event, he did this during the day when it would be visible. He didn't do it the night before at low attendance time. He did it at what we might call high noon at the O.K. Corral. He threw down the gauntlet that day. And this is probably the thing that led to his crucifixion more than any other. This was the moment that we see our Savior completely and absolutely hacked. And let's not miss this together. The reason he threw down the gauntlet was for the least of these. It was for the outcasts. It was for the foreigner. It was for the eunuchs. Man, we've got to love that kind of king. A room full of outcasts. A room full of foreigners have got to love that kind of king. Let's go back to our tree. Back in Mark chapter 11. The last two verses that we looked at this morning in verse 20 and 21. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they went home that night. And as they passed by the next morning, they see the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has... Withered. The very same tree that they saw the day before, the one that they saw in the distance that was in full leaf but was nothing but leaves, no figs, has proven unfruitful and is now dead down to the roots. I mean, overnight, that's faster than Roundup. That's getting it done. Overnight, this thing is dead. A passage that came up in my studies is from Micah chapter 7. The prophet, you can just listen to this passage and just sort of take in this verse and imagine what this must have been like for this prophet. 700 years before Christ, Judah and Israel are going into exile. And this prophet is seeing what's unfolding here in the people. And he says this, it likens the fruitfulness of Israel to a fig tree that has no fruit on it. He says, woe is me for I've become as when the summer fruit has been gathered as when the grapes have been gleaned, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Man, Micah is pining for a fig too. He's hungry for a fig as a prophet of Israel. But instead what he's finding is the godlier perishing from the earth. There's no one upright among mankind. They lie in wait for blood. They hunt each other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, and they do it well, by the way. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. This is what he's found instead of righteousness. And he's pining for one good, ripe fig. One way to think of this tree is the same way to think of this temple. This temple is a boastful fig tree full of promises that it can't deliver in full leaf, in all its glory, the eighth or ninth or tenth wonder of the world, column so big around it takes three people to wrap around it. In the eyes of the world, this thing has got it going. But it's not delivering. There's no fruit. and He's pining for just one ripe fig his soul desires. But instead, it's all show, no go. All talk and no walk like waterless clouds It looks promising, but it just doesn't deliver. Probably like most Sundays, I had three points that I wanted to bring this morning. And I wrestled with that all morning. My fear was that in bringing three points that you might miss the most important point. So I've actually bailed on what I would consider the lesser points in hopes that you just get this one simple point. I'm going to send out the other points in an email this week. But I don't want you to miss this most important point. Guys that I studied that were writing on this passage that probably spent their lives studying Mark or studying the Gospels or studying this ancient Greek and trying to make sense of it pointed out the unusual fact that Mark pointed out that it's not the season for figs. It's a strange addition. You would think if he's going to make a point here with this tree that has so much promise that has all the leaves on it that doesn't have any fruit that he would just keep it simple but he threw Jesus under the bus it seems think about it for a minute he pointed out well it's not really the season for figs so take it easy on the tree it's strange it's a strange addition everybody I study is like I can't make sense of it but I think what's making sense here what seems to develop here is the this profound fact is a fig tree in full leaf at passover Is making a promise that it can't fulfill. It's a beautiful metaphor of a temple that's making a promise that it too can't fulfill. The temple is supposed to be the place where man meets with God, but it's not getting it done. Man, it's in full leaf, it looks the part, it looks great. But there's no real fruit. And the temple is from the roots dead. From the roots dead. Just consider this. The Gentiles can't even get into their own court. The Gentiles can't even get into their own court for all the booths in there. Canton is going on in there. Between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Ones who might manage to get in, though, they face a sign that says, you cross this line and you die. Man, it doesn't sound like Isaiah chapter 56 is happening yet. How could they possibly give their offering and enjoy their offering on the altar? Gentiles can't get in for the first first place, but the ones who might certainly can't go past the wall into the court of the women. And then there's, of course, the problem where the women can't get into the court of men. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like things are going well. I don't see any fruit yet. There's no figs on this tree just yet. Men can't get into the court of the priests. And priests, is only one of them that can get into the Holy of Holies. And that's just one day a year. And that's with the blood of an innocent and just hoping that you don't croak in there. Man, things are not going well in this temple. This temple is from the roots dead. And Jesus promised it was going to be leveled, and it was, in fact, in 70 A.D. Four years after it was finished, leveled, with one little tiny remaining wall standing right now where people continue to pray. That's it. Thankfully, it was leveled because it was dead from the roots. But then there's Jesus. This is the only point I wanted to make this morning. And it is a profound point that we can enjoy on the second Sunday of Easter. Then there's Jesus. If you're still in Mark, look at this passage, just one passage at the end of his life, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon to 3 p.m., complete darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema Sabatstani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And here's the point of the morning. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And in that moment, on that cross, all who are united to Christ by faith have access forevermore. All. Eunuchs, foreigners, outcasts, Gentiles, women, Men, all. Jesus did what the fig tree couldn't do because it wasn't in season. And Jesus did what the temple could never accomplish it brought us to God. He brought us to God through his torn and broken body on the cross. He accomplished through the cross what the temple on 10,000 Passovers would never accomplish, figs in every season, and figs on every branch. Amen? Man, let's pray. Lord, what good news we have in Christ. What access we have in Christ. What profound... um, What a profound space we have now. There's no concentric circles. There's no distance. There's no outer courts. There's no walls. No signage, no threat of death, no money changers, no pigeon sailors, no canton, just access. Full and total and complete access in the person of Christ ah, he's good Lord we is, he is so good and we are so thankful pray these things in his name amen let's we'll share a passage before we have our supper it's in the book of Ephesians he's talking about a, a wall that's been broken down between Jew and Gentile He's talking about how that wall was um, broken down. I think it's a fitting passage that we read before we take the supper. I'll share this before I read this passage. If you uh, are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have united Him by faith, which is synonymous for tr- trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you have this access to God. Then you, this meal's for you. If, if you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then please forego this meal. This passage in Ephesians 2. I, um, my, uh, let me just tell you, There's a mixture of emotions that I'm feeling right now, and I'm feeling profound sadness at the difficulty of life here on earth. And I'm pining for when we're together with Him in glory, and I'm sad um, about the difficulties that we all face in just doing life together, and I'm so delighted all in the same breath with what Christ has accomplished for us. Just consider this passage both horizontally and vertically. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Excuse me, I need to regroup. All right, I'm going to import the layout of the temple into this passage. Therefore, remember that you had to stay out in the court of the Gentiles, that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You're way out there. God's way in here. You are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, man, what a couple great words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? Huh. Now we're talking vertical right there. We're talking vertical reconciliation right there. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now we're talking horizontal. That in Christ, Jew and Gentile can be one. Man, that's hope for any horizontal problem. That in Christ, even Jew and Gentile can be reconciled. Now that, that is sweet. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You hear that wall coming down? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. You know who that man is? It's called the church. That's us about to take a meal together. That he might create one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body "...through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, way out there in the court of the Gentiles, and peace to you who are near in the court of the Israelites, the courts of the priests and the men and the women. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints." and members of the household of God. As members of the household of God together, let's take and eat a meal together. Let's distribute the elements.